shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Men, women, and children covered the road with coats and palm branches as Jesus made his way to Jerusalem on the back of a humble donkey. All that cheer and all that fanfare is a loud confession. The people are declaring that Jesus is the promised Messiah. God had promised Israel a king who would deliver them. And now that climactic moment was upon them. This, however, was not the first time that Jesus was recognized as Messiah. Up to this point in our reading of Matthew's Gospel, we have found the disciples to be mostly bumbling and clueless. Jesus miraculously feeds thousands and they continue to be worried about bread. He tries to teach them and they seem to just keep missing the point. Again and again, they are found to have little faith. But in today's verses, we turn a corner. The disciples begin to see Jesus for who he really is. We'll be picking up this morning in Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verse 13. In Matthew 16, 13, Matthew tells us, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood but by my Father in heaven. We find Jesus in the disciples in the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is where that red mark is up there, a good deal away from the Sea of Galilee. So they've landed their boat, they've trekked north to Caesarea Philippi. And the thing that you should know about Caesarea Philippi is it's not really a Jewish region region of that land. Um, most of the native population is Syrian and Greek, and the Romans end up kind of making settlement there as well, which is why you get the word Caesarea, referring to Caesar, uh, Philippi. Now, part of the point in Jesus going so far away from the region of Galilee is that he wanted to have some alone time with his disciples to offer some, some instruction to them. And he goes on, as he's with his disciples, to ask them, who do people say that he is? Um, now, Jesus has been telling people who he is throughout the Gospel of Matthew, um, if you read between the lines, but explicitly as well. He's often referred to himself 
as the Son of Man. That's how Jesus refers to himself nine times, actually, in the Gospel of Matthew. And the Son of Man is not a new term, um, and probably the most prophetically significant appearance of that term is found in Daniel 7. It's a bit obscure, though, and so it was kind of lost on Jesus' audience. In Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, it's, it says of Daniel, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So if you have that passage in view, when you hear Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man, you recognize Jesus is making some significant claims for himself. But again, it's sort of an obscure reference. And so it's kind of an under-the-radar way of Jesus to affirm who he is, that he is the Messiah, without throwing the people into a frenzy. Now, the fact that some, a lot of people still weren't seeing who Jesus was is, that, is indicated by the response that the disciples give as to who people say that Jesus is. They say, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist had died, so they, some kind of reincarnate version of, of John the Baptist because their ministries were similar. In fact, in Matthew 14, Herod, who killed John the Baptist when he heard about Jesus, thought, oh man, I chopped this guy's head off. Uh, has he come back to life or something? Um, they also say that uh, they think that perhaps uh, he's Elijah because in the prophets it's spoken of how Elijah was to come to God's people once again. And Jesus tells us in Matthew eleven fourteen that John the Baptist actually uh, fulfills uh, this prophecy. Uh, but that prophecy is found in Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6. It says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So the fact that John fulfills this prophecy about Elijah being sent to God's people. Not that John the Baptist was literally Elijah, but that, that he was following in the tradition of Elijah, that he was a type of Elijah that God was sending to his people, indicates that the Jewish crowds are not too far off the mark. They're getting close to the role that Jesus is playing, but Jesus has not come as Elijah. Others have suggested maybe he was Jeremiah or one of the other prophets because all of those prophets played a significant role in the life of Israel. So Jesus has asked the disciples the feedback they've gotten from other people as to who he is. And then he turns to the real point of interest that he has, which is this, in verse 16. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Now, when Jesus asked this question of his disciples, we, we almost anticipate now that they're going to mess this up again, that they're going to be puzzled. Um, 
And the first one who steps up with an answer is Peter. And we're beginning to kind of get a trend here with Peter. He's, he's a leader of the group. He's the one that first steps up. And you remember when Jesus was walking across the Sea of Galilee and the disciples see them, they're all freaked out. Peter says, you know what? I want to step out of the boat and go to Jesus. Now, he didn't have enough faith. He had, when he, once he saw the wind and the waves and he began to sink. But this is a bold guy. He, he, he wants to just step up and assert what he thinks. And in this case, though, he does make an entirely truthful, assertive answer. In verse 16, he tells Jesus, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, this is the first time that we see Jesus referred to as the Messiah, that actual word appearing. Now, there's other things like Son of David, and again, those in-between-the-lines kind of clues that point to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And Matthew, in his commentary on Jesus, will use the word Messiah, but we never see it coming from actual people in the scene that Matthew is describing. Um, But we do have a sense that there was actually some people talking about this possibility early in Jesus' ministry. In fact, if you go to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 41, we find Peter. Now, Peter's, Peter is a nickname, and we're going to kind of flesh that out a bit. His given name is Simon. So, in, first, in John 1, verse 41, it says, the first thing Andrew did when he, was, when he had found Jesus, when he had heard of Jesus, it says, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon, Simon Peter, and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. Now, that's really helpful there that John puts the term Messiah and Christ side by side. Um, because... Some of you might have wondered, well, what does the word Christ even mean? Is that just Jesus' last name? It's not Jesus' last name. The term Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, Christos. And both Messiah, which is the Hebrew word, and Christos mean the anointed one, which is just supposed to indicate that this is the one who is a promised king, the one, this one anointed king who is to fulfill all of God's promises to deliver the people of Israel. Now we find in the Old Testament all kinds of occurrences of this promise, but I just want to bring your attention to one just to kind of anchor our understanding here of what of the significance of all this. In 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 through 16, God makes this promise to David. He says, "When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood." I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, there's something that we need to understand about um, Old Testament 
prophecy and promises if we're going to understand their connection with Jesus. Because as we hear God's words here to David, we understand that there's actual an immediate fulfillment at play here because the first temple that was built was not built by Jesus. It was built by Solomon, David's son. And yet, at the same time, we see that there's a whole lot of promises given here that Solomon does not fulfill. Solomon is not faithful. Because of his unfaithfulness to God, the kingdom is eventually divided. And we end up seeing the throne being empty because of Israel's sinfulness. And yet God promises that he's going to establish the throne of David forever. So we have kind of a both now and yet to come going on here. Yes, Solomon is fulfilling some of these promises, but God is indicating something more to come, which is now, you know, as, as we're seeing these, these, this scene playing out with Jesus, is now being fulfilled by Jesus, who is from the tribe of Judah, who is a son of David. But in this case, it's becoming clear that he is the son of David, the one to fulfill this promise. In Isaiah 11, 1 through 4, we're reminded of this still-to-come aspect because of what happened to David's line. It says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse has been turned into a stump because of the sinfulness of the people. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. All the other branches hadn't been bearing fruit. But there is a branch that is going to come and bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Now, as you're hearing that prophecy given, it sounds a whole lot like Jesus. And yet, there are also details there that seem to even go beyond the first coming of Jesus, when it talks about how with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Because we know when Jesus first came, he did not come to condemn or to destroy, but to save. But there is another day coming when Christ will return, and all men will stand before him, for judgment. And so this is, again, the nature of Old Testament prophecy. It's kind of a top-down look, and you're seeing everything. But as we're living in time, we're passing through, seeing everything on the ground, one at a time, one at a time. Now, Peter, in his confession of who Jesus is, says not only that he is the Messiah, but that he is the Son of the living God. Now, the significance of that kind of addition to Peter's confession is that you got to remember the setting that they're in. They're in a Gentile area that's full of pagan gods. They're all dead. They're just idols. They're not real. They're not living like the God of Israel. And by calling him the son of the living God, Peter is once again going back to those promises that God made to David 
that God would be a father to David and to this promised son. And also at the same time, it's giving a hint of something divine, even if Peter doesn't even completely understand all this. We do remember, though, that the disciples have worshipped Jesus, which is not really appropriate to just worship somebody who's human, because God alone is worthy of worship. But the pieces are starting to come together here in Peter's confession. In Psalm 2, verses 7 through 8, we hear God referring, telling David about how he's his son and how this would then apply for, those who, for him who is the son of David. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Again, David didn't inherit the whole earth. The whole earth didn't become his possession. But this will become true in Christ. We see the church spread globally across the world. The church is not a kingdom of this earth, but the kingdom of God is going to come to earth. And all of this will come to pass. Now, as, Jesus, as we hear Peter's confession here, we might think, well, perhaps Peter is a sharp guy after all. Maybe Jesus is thinking this now. Well, gee, maybe I've kind of underestimated Peter. But it's clear that that's not the case at all. Peter didn't come to this conclusion based upon his wits. Now, in verse 17, this is what Jesus says. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Peter didn't come to this conclusion because of his brain power or because of any other human being's brain power. He came to this conclusion because the Father revealed it to him supernaturally. Because before, he couldn't put the pieces together. They were all distracted. And in John 6.44, we see that this is true of all people. None of us come to believe in Jesus just based on our natural powers. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent sent me draws them, and I'll raise them up at the last day. So when we come and believe in God, when we believe in Jesus, it's not because we're great. It's because God is great, and he's worked within us. And so as we think about those in our lives who haven't believed in Christ, we should give them the most reasonable arguments and explanations pointing to the truth of who Christ is, but at the same time recognize that that won't be enough that God must reveal this to them, that he must work within them. Because if you don't recognize this, you're going to run into a whole bunch of disappointment. And I ran into a lot of that early on when I would share the gospel with some of my coworkers when I wasn't working in the church, when I was working in a factory, and they would just laugh me off. And when they'd make crude jokes about Christ. And it's in that moment that I realized it's not about me. It's not about my reasonableness. It's about God transforming their hearts and opening them up so that they can see Christ and receive Him. So Peter receives no credit here. But that doesn't change the fact that his confession about Jesus' identity is good. Very good. Which is why he's called blessed. 
Peter has rightly answered who Jesus is. And now Jesus is going to tell Peter who he is. And as we'll see, who we are. Picking up in verse 18, Jesus says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now let's remember here that Peter's given name is Simon, and Jesus is, just a couple sentences ago, referred to him as Simon, son of Jonah. But now Jesus is taking his nickname of Peter and imputing it with greater meaning. We don't know exactly how Peter came to this earlier nickname, whether it was because maybe he was a strong guy or maybe, maybe he had demonstrated some spiritual virtues earlier, but now we have the definitive reason why Peter is called Peter, as given by Jesus here. In John 1.42, we hear that Jesus had said to him early on that you are Simon, son of Jonah, you will be called Cephas, which is actually the just the Aramaic version of uh, Peter. Peter is the Greek version of that name. And in the Greek, Petros means rock. And so what Jesus is trying to do is draw attention to what he's going to say next about Peter. Verse 18, he says, On this rock I will build my church. So what Jesus is saying here is that He's going to build the church on Peter. Kind of. <laughs> we have to have some qualifications here because while Peter is serving as a rock, it's, again, it's not by his flesh and blood. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has made a whole lot of this passage. Um, that because Peter is the rock, and because Peter was once the bishop of Rome, he died as the bishop of Rome, then the authority of the bishop of Rome as pope is based upon the fact that Peter's a rock. And so this, this authority passes down from whoever succeeds Peter. Now that's a really big leap, that's a big stretch, because the text doesn't talk about any of that. None of the scriptures talk about any of that. Um, and when we look at the historical evidence, there's a whole bunch of back and forth between all the different bishops of these major cities about who was really kind of in charge. And it was more of a plurality of authority among them until you get later on, like 800 years later before you start to see the bishop of Rome began to kind of concentrate power. And even then, you end up having two churches, <laughs> the Roman Catholic Church in the West and the Eastern Orthodox Church in the East. So at no point has, anyone has the church universally recognized the primary authority of the bishop of Rome. Now, this misinterpretation shouldn't distract us from 
a right interpretation. Clearly, Peter is important. <laughs> Just remember the present situation that's going on here. Peter has confessed faith in Jesus as Messiah. He's stepping forward as a leader of the disciples, and we're going to see that he's going to be playing a huge part in the life of the early church. But again, what is most significant in this moment is his confession. Jesus says Peter is a rock. In one sense, it does apply personally, but more broadly applies to the confession of faith that he has just uttered, which all the disciples share, and which we all share. And several of the early church fathers point to the fact that it was really this confession of faith in Christ, which is the really rocky substance of Peter here. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to share all of them, but and not even some of the most important ones, but I'm going to share one that is stated most simply. This one comes from Basil of Seleucia, who lived in the early 400s. And he says, Now Christ called this confession a rock. And he named the one who confessed it Peter, perceiving the appellation as the name, which was suitable to the author of this confession. For this is the solemn rock of religion, this the basis of salvation, this the wall of faith and the foundation of truth. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, to whom be glory and power forever. So yes, Peter was a rock, but he was a rock because of his confession of faith in Christ, who is in fact the rock of rocks. This is our foundation. And Paul testifies along these lines in Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 20. He says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which certainly includes Peter. But then, catch this, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. So this is not about Peter the human being as such, but about what he and all the apostles testified about Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone of the church. And this takes us to the next statement from Christ in verse 18. Jesus says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, Hades was the Greek term for the place of the dead, for the realm of the dead. And what Jesus is saying here is that death will not overcome the church. That the powers of evil will not overcome the church. And again, this must refer to the church more than Peter because we know that Peter himself dies. He ends up being crucified. But the church lives on. The confession of the church in Christ lives on. And as Jesus is saying this to Peter and to the rest of the disciples, he's saying it against a powerful backdrop. So this is in Caesarea Philippi. And these are some pagan temples. And on the left, over here, you will find a temple to the god Pan. 
And I've actually been able to visit this place, and you'll notice there's kind of a big hole behind here because there's a big pit that leads down into the earth, and it's filled with water. And they believe that it led down to Hades. And so it was called the Gates of Hades. So Jesus is saying, the gates of Hades will not <laughs> overcome you. So even though you see this big scary hole here, do not be afraid. The powers that they offered sacrifices to by dropping sacrificed animals to drown in the water. And all kinds of really gross and other stuff. None of that's going to amount to anything in the face of the power of the church. The church will overcome. The church is eternal. And we have seen the power and endurance of the church by the fact that it has outlasted countless pagan religions. Empires have risen and fallen. And yet the church remains. And the church will remain until Christ returns. Now, of course, local churches may close. Our church might close one day. And that's not saying anything depressing. If you look at some of the early churches that existed in Acts, those literal gathering places, they don't exist anymore. But the body of Christ continues to live on. Because the body of Christ is bigger than any one local gathering. It's global. The church will remain from one generation to the next until Christ returns. And we will live and reign in that age to come. But the church will stand not because of the power of her members, not by our wit and our strength. No, the church will endure because of the power and strength of Christ who is her immovable cornerstone. It's important for us to remember this as we consider Jesus' next words in verse 19. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So Peter has been given a revelation of who Jesus is by the Father. And now Peter is being given authority by the Son. The thing to catch here is that everything here is God-given. None of this comes to Peter naturally. Now, in giving, in Jesus saying that Peter is going to be given the keys of the kingdom, what's being indicated is that Peter is going to be given authority in the kingdom of God. But again, the kingdom is not Peter's. He's only been given the keys to the kingdom. And the best way I can compare this is, is you know, when you've got a 16-year-old, you might give them the keys to your car to drive someplace, but you're not giving them the car. You're only giving them the authority to drive the car to wherever they need to get to. So you won't call the cops on them because you've, you've given them this permission to drive your car. So Peter is being given here the authority to drive the kingdom of God forward. 
Peter and the rest of the disciples are going to be on the cutting edge of bringing God's forgiveness and salvation to all. And notably, we see in the book of Acts how Peter appears at critical moments in expanding the gospel. In Jerusalem, he's the one who, who gives kind of the leading message to the crowds that had assembled, preaching them the good news that Christ was risen and that forgiveness was possible to all who would repent and believe in Christ. We see then later as the disciples move into the area of Samaria and the Samaritans respond, both he and the Apostle John go there and confirm the validity, the inclusion of the Samaritans by placing their hands on them and them receiving the Holy Spirit. And then we see Peter once again extending Christ's welcome to the Gentiles as he goes into the house of the Roman centurion Cornelius and all of him and his household respond and become Christians. A couple of chapters over in Matthew, we see that this authority is not limited to Peter, but it's extended to all the disciples. And in fact, to the church as a congregation. In Matthew 18, 18, and we'll take a closer look when we get to this passage, but it says there, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, binding and loosing is the authority to teach, to forgive, and to discipline. In terms of forgiveness, we see Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 22 through 23, say say to his disciples, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now we have to be careful here because we shouldn't, think that the disciples are given some authority here that is apart from God's will. As though the disciples might stand between God and a person that he is ready to forgive. No disciple can get between God and someone that he wills to forgive. Now, the role that the disciples play here is that they are the authoritative vessels of communication of God's will in any given situation when it comes to the realm of the church. If Peter says someone is not forgiven, it's because they are already not forgiven, not because he's preventing them from being forgiven. If he says they're forgiven, it's because God has forgiven them. As a church, as a congregation, we together continue to have this kind of authority. When, when, when needed, we have the authority to tell someone they are not forgiven, that they need to repent of ongoing sin and rebellion. Now, it's not fun doing that, but love is not always fun. Yet it is with the same authority given by Christ that we the people of Rockland Community Church can tell people who are sinners, who are broken and rebellious, but who have now surrendered themselves to Christ. It's by this authority which comes from Christ that we have the authority to tell these people, 
Jesus loves you. You are forgiven. When we say those words, they are true, because Christ is true. Everything always returns to who Christ is. We would have no authority to offer this forgiveness if Jesus is not the Messiah, the Son of the living God. On the high note of Peter's confession, we would expect Jesus to begin a big campaign declaring that he is the Messiah. But this isn't what happens. Jesus instead instructs his disciples to tell no one that he is the the Messiah. Now, it seems baffling to us that he would keep this under wraps, but it will soon become clear. For now, it's enough to say that while the disciples might recognize Jesus as the Messiah, they don't have a clear understanding of what that actually means. And if their understanding is fuzzy, then the understanding of the Jewish crowds will be absolutely blurred. For now, though, the disciples have progressed a step further in understanding Jesus in their own place in the kingdom. So, too, our understanding has progressed. We are reminded here that no one who can see Jesus for who he is can do this apart from divine intervention. Even our understanding, even our cognitive wherewithal is corrupted by sin. What we are shown by God is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all his promises to Israel and to the whole world. He has not abandoned us. He has sent us his son to be our savior. And he is making a people for himself, built upon Peter and all the apostles and followed by all those fathers and mothers of the faith who have come after them and before us. But all of these are nothing without Jesus as the cornerstone. Peter is a rock only because he stands on the rock of Christ. The church is only a strong fortress against death and all demonic power because with Peter we confess that Jesus is our Messiah. He is our King and Savior. Our authority flows only from his authority. He is the one who has put the message of forgiveness on our lips. The disciples had to wait to tell the world that Jesus is the Messiah. We no longer wait. We live in the day in which he has told us, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Now is our time to tell the world who Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, With Peter, we confess that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of the living God. Father, we give thanks that in this confession we have a solid rock because Christ is the cornerstone and that because we are built upon him, we we can have confidence in the face of death and all the evil forces in this world, Father. Help us to remain faithful, Father, to this confession so that we will not falter 
so that we will not have little faith, but that we will stand firm because we know Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the promised King, that He has saved us and that He is coming again. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The Lord bless you as you go forward this day. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offer to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.